does the winner get in this bet? Oh, good question. Julia will buy you a new Rivian. <laughs> All right, Rivian on the table. I can't do that. Um, I don't think I could get one in time. <laughs> um, I mean, dinners are always fair game. I don't know. We should maybe ask our listeners, what should we bet? <laughs> The national average for gasoline hit a record $4.48 a gallon on Monday. That means prices of the pump are now up nearly 30% from the day before Russia invaded Ukraine. Cars and trucks produce nearly one-fifth of America's greenhouse gas emissions, all of which must be eliminated if we're going to achieve the target of net zero emissions by 2050. Luckily, there are more zero emissions vehicles in the market today than ever before. So, will the combination of high gas prices, more EV models, and an imperative for climate action see the U.S. turn a corner on mass EV adoption? Or should we buckle up for a bumpy ride to mainstreaming electric vehicles? We discuss on this episode of Political Climate, a podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. As always, I'm your host, Julia Piper. Joining me from down the road in Los Angeles is Brandon Hurlbut, cleantech investor, climate activist, and partner at Boundary Stone Partners, a leading climate change government affairs firm working at the intersection of technology, finance, and policy. Brandon is a former chief of staff at the Department of Energy and previously served as President Obama's liaison to the Energy and Environment Cabinet Dang, have I been missing that long yet to give like the full bio on this one? <laughs> It's been a it's while been since we've all been together. <laughs> Remind I everyone. Thought so, you know, you have such a great resume, too. I just figured we'd give you some props, you know, remind us of who we're in the presence <laughs> of. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's Shane on the other line as well. He's, he's got a much shorter bio. <laughs> I'm here, too. It was good enough. <laughs> <laughs> that is Shane Skelton, Senior Vice President at Boundary Stone Partners. Shane previously worked for Representative Paul Ryan as Counsel and Policy Advisor on the House Budget Committee, overseeing all energy, environment, natural resource, and regulatory policy. Shane, I think you're on the road right now. Where are you tuning into the podcast from? So I'm actually in Detroit uh, right now, which, you know, I'm going to be honest and I'm going to demonstrate to our audience how stupid I am. I literally did not know that I could see Canada from Detroit. So I probably should have known that. I'm a Midwestern guy. I was born in, uh, well, I was born in New York, but grew up in Madison. Had no idea. So it's pretty exciting. I can see your homeland, Julia, the big flag flying right across the river. You're further north of Canada in Detroit looking south at Windsor. They say this is the only place, and I learned this yesterday, that you can see Canada looking south from the U.S. Yeah. Uh, so that's exciting. Um, <laughs> but I'm here exciting. at the Clean Energy Buyers Association Conference. SEBA uh, is actually a client that we've worked for for a long time. And, and really what it is, is it's a group of very large energy consumers. So think your Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies who use a lot of energy. It's a big expense for you know large companies, whether you're in a, a, a commercial and industrial or you know you have data centers, whatever it is that you do. Energy is a big expense. And what these companies have come to find is that investing in clean energy development and deployment is not only, you know, cool and meets your ESG goals, but it's actually cheaper. And so it's a conference of a ton of companies who are working on uh, several very exciting issues, but uh, really cool for me to be here with 600 people. I didn't know 600 people would sign up for the Clean Energy Buyers Association Conference. So it's been a lot of fun. I read this morning that Corporates procured like 13 gigawatts worth of solar last year, which is more than all utilities combined. Yeah. So we'll have to do a nerd out on this one time. But what we work on, Brandon, like that's really critically important is that in some markets, they're not able to do that. 
And so they have the capital to do it. They have the know-how to do it. They have the willpower to do it. Uh, but in certain markets, the way that it's organized in the U.S. Uh, electricity system, they are legally prohibited from doing that because the government granted monopolies. So maybe an episode uh, for another day. For sure. I saw that NPR is hiring a reporter just to cover corporate clean energy. That's pretty incredible that a news outlet like that is making that an entire beat. So it speaks to the power of these corporations and moving the needle on climate, you know, or, or not in some cases. But super interesting. Let's totally put a pin in that and come back to it. For now, though, before we go on, I do want to give a shout out to our friends and partners at the USC Schwarzenegger Institute, which is helping put on the Austrian World Summit. This is an in-person and online event that will feature none other than Arnold Schwarzenegger, a supporter of the show, as well as other leaders in the climate and energy sector. That includes Franz Timmermans, executive vice president of the European Commission, and many more leaders on sustainability from all around the world. And of course, this is a critical time to be having these conversations, especially in Europe, after the recent conflict between Russia and Ukraine has really shattered our view of how to approach energy and energy security. Meanwhile, the climate crisis looms large. Also, this marks 30 years years since the Earth Summit that was held in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. So there's a lot to discuss. And so anyone who's interested in tuning into that, I hope you'll check it out at AustrianWorldSummit.com. There'll be more information there. We got to get back there to Austria. It's actually a fun fact that we won an award from the Los Angeles Press Club in the talk show and public affairs category for our coverage from the Austrian World Summit. That's where Brandon famously interviewed Greta Thunberg. That's right. When we got to sit down with uh, Arnold. Well, and we should tell our audience that it broke Julia's heart because Brandon and I became credential, or I'm sorry, award-winning journalists at the same time as Julia after her long <laughs> and illustrious it career in the media. It did break my heart. <laughs> I was so proud. <laughs> Well, with that, let's shift gears and get up to speed on the main topic of this week's episode, high gas prices and the adoption of EVs. And if you can't tell, I'm going to use as many vehicle-related turns of phrase as I can this episode without making anyone carsick. Okay, I'm done. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. Support for Political Climate is provided by Fish Tank PR. From combating climate change to defunding oligarchs, the transition to a clean energy economy cannot come fast enough. Solutions abound in the energy transition, but there's also more noise every day. The Fish Tank team brings together deep industry expertise with a love for storytelling. Fish Tank does more than just generate interest from top-tier publications and best-in-class trade media. They help connect brands with the right decision makers and stakeholders. Find out the difference Fish Tank can offer at fishtankpr.com. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com. If you left the house in the past month or so, you've probably noticed that gas prices are off the charts. Here in Southern California, I saw regular gas hit around $6.50 per gallon over the weekend. These prices started to reach record highs following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which threw global oil and gas markets into turmoil. High gas prices have fed inflation, driving up prices for food, heating, and other staples, including, of course, what it costs to simply get around town. 
That's because we live in a world where the vast majority of consumers still rely on oil to fuel their vehicles. And so they're feeling the pain at the pump. And politicians are feeling the pain too. Particularly Democrats, which, as we know, currently have control of the White House, Senate, and House of Representatives. Barely. Feeling the political heat, Democrats in Congress have accused oil and gas companies of ripping off consumers and profiteering from higher-than-necessary gas prices. And in response, they promised legislation that would allow the U.S. Federal Trade Commission and state attorneys to go after these oil companies for price gouging. Republicans, meanwhile, have placed the blame squarely on President Biden and Democrat policies that they say are hurting American energy. So I want to go to you, Shane, first, and then Brandon, on what do you make of the fact that there are high gas prices and the tools that are now being discussed to reduce them? There is this idea of cracking down on companies for maybe increasing prices higher than they they should. But there's also other measures that politicians could pursue, like easing up on the federal gas tax or opening up potentially more domestic oil and gas development, which could in theory help lower prices, although we are in this global market. So First, Shane, what are your thoughts on the idea of cracking down on oil and gas? Does that have legs? Uh, I mean, it may have legs to get a show vote in in the House, uh, probably not in the Senate. But I know Brandon's been around a while, as have I. And every time gas prices go up, you see all the same song and dance. It it doesn't matter. It's it's of no consequence. And it's interesting that the White House correctly argues that no White House has control over gasoline prices. And then they go through a bunch of gyrations to pretend like they're going to do stuff to drive gasoline prices down. Uh, I'm not knocking, you know, Democrats at this point. I'm just tired of it. Like we see it every few years. And when I first got to D.C., someone told me, if you stay here five years, you'll know everything because the same things just recycle themselves over and over and over again. Same ideas, same tricks, same politics. Um, That isn't always true. I think we're seeing a lot of creative solutions out there. Uh, I think newer companies are bringing, you know, newer thought processes to bear. But the reality that any, you know, legislature is going to pass a bill or the White House is going to issue an order that's going to impact gas prices is wrong. And honestly, I think that to do it is wrong because you're sending a signal to your constituents and ultimately the consumers that something can be done when the reality is it just can't. So we talked before about the fact that President Biden already opened the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to try and help ease the pain at the pump. Last week, they canceled one of the most high-profile oil and gas lease opportunities pending before the Interior Department. That was to halt drilling for oil on over 1 million acres of the Cook Inlet in Alaska. And they said that was due to a, quote, lack of industry interest in leasing in the area. They also halted two leases under consideration in the Gulf of Mexico. So, Brandon, to you, I mean, obviously from a climate perspective, opening up more drilling does not make sense. But we do have this acute issue right now that is having a real impact on a lot of Americans' lives. So do you think that was the right call from the Biden administration to move away from those leases? Yes, I do. I was reading a recent report by the Roosevelt Institute that showed that recessions are followed by big oil price uh, spikes. And if you look at the volatility of like electricity prices, we have a lot more control over that. They're much less volatile than oil prices. And so, you know, when we've been in this position before, we did not have the options that we have now. But we have great alternatives on transportation uh, to alleviate uh, high gasoline prices. And that is, you know, electric vehicles. Um, because the prices have come down and the savings on electricity versus your fuel prices, especially right now, uh, are pretty incredible. So, you know, locking in those leases for huge capital expenditures for the next 20 years, risking stranded assets, I think we have a better alternative. I want to get into EVs in just a second, but putting on your pure political hat, do you feel like it was 
the right call for the Biden administration, again, politically. If there was truly no demand to drill in the Arctic and they were never going to be, you know, drilled into anyway, supposedly, then why not just let that lease just sort of lie to avoid the blowback that the Biden administration is now getting from Republicans and even some moderates, perhaps, that they're stymieing domestic energy production at a time that we need it for geopolitical reasons? Could they have just let that lie to avoid the political pain? I know it was going to develop there anyway. I don't know. It's hard because there's so much nuance in this issue. So uh, maybe you're making a fair point. I mean, with those uh, leases, they, they don't really make a difference, right? Uh, the president has such little control over the price of gasoline. So maybe on just the pure politics, you know, I, I see your point. But I think on the politics, I would just be leaning into how can we support domestic manufacturing? How can we support the supply chain to ramp up the production of EVs? Because I also think it's a fair point that if you want to get an EV today, you might have to wait for that <laughs> because there's not enough. And so uh, I would be focusing on creating those local manufacturing jobs, increasing the supply chain, not being dependent on, on China for those critical minerals that we need for EVs and helping deploy you know, EV charging infrastructure in places where it's harder to make that happen, especially disadvantaged communities or rural areas. Uh, so that's what I would be leaning in on. Well, you set up the rest of our episode, I think, perfectly. Let's get into some more of the details and some of those items that you just teed up. So one upside to higher gas prices is that it boosts demand for electric vehicles. A recent CBS News poll found that a third of U.S. adults would consider an electric car slightly more would even buy a hybrid if they were in the market for a vehicle. And they cited higher gas prices as one big reason why, along with the belief that these vehicles are cleaner and better for the environment. And it's not just intent. EV cells are actually reflecting an uptick. So a decade after slow and steady growth, EV registrations in the U.S. shot up 60% in the first quarter of 2022, year over year, even as overall car registrations dropped by 18%. So it's the latest indication that domestic EV acceptance may have turned some kind of corner. The sharp increase in EV registrations at the start of this year brings total EV share of the U.S. market to an historic 4.6%. Now, overall, still pretty paltry, but we're making progress. Before we get into some of the policy, Brandon, you work in this space looking at some of the most exciting technologies in the EV side. What are you seeing in this landscape that gets you excited? I'm so excited. We're seeing incredible innovation with our Overture Fund. We've done a couple of EV investments. One is a financing platform to swap out big diesel trucks for zero emission trucks. So uh, particularly in the areas like the ports here in Southern California, where you have 40% of all the cargo comes into those two major ports. There's 15,000 drayage trucks that come in and out of those ports every day polluting those communities around there. And zero emission trucks have some of the same challenges in financing that solar did in the early days. This is a very valuable asset, but has a higher upfront cost. And so in the ways that like Sunrun, Sonova, Solar City came up with innovative financing techniques with an attractive customer proposition, which is with no money down, you could save money uh, immediately on your electricity bill. Uh, we're seeing the same thing with zero emission vehicles, particularly in, in trucking. The total cost of ownership pencils out because you can save so much money on the maintenance. You can save so much money on, you know, the fuel costs with electricity, you know, but the it's a higher upfront cost. So now we invest in a company that is able to offer truck drivers, hey, with no money down, 
and we can save you money immediately on what you're paying on your diesel truck per month and swap out a zero emission truck for your diesel truck and manage the charging for you. So the truck driver can show up at a depot, pick up the truck, drive it you know, for the day, drop it back at the depot. It'll get charged. They pay less money per month. Uh, they're driving, you know, a zero emission vehicle. So we're really excited about that. We invested in a stealth EV manufacturer that is trying to do medium duty. We've seen a lot of companies try to figure this out. There's a lot of people in the space, but no one's really nailed it yet. We're hoping uh, the company that we invested in, but it's seeing incredible new techniques on batteries, people trying to extend range, get more density, replacing the battery chemistry with silicon. So there's a lot of people trying to do this and we're seeing just a, a, a lot of great innovation and opportunities and excited about what that's going to lead to. Yeah, there's actually a great story on Canary Media right now talking about the growth and adoption of these heavy-duty electric trucks by Jeff St. John. He talks about Volvo looking at making new electric truck orders, also quality custom distribution. You know, these companies that we may not even know of but play a big role in moving our goods around the globe really are actually starting to buy these vehicles in real numbers. So totally hear you on that. Turning to the passenger EV side, there's actually a new report out by Energy Innovation that compares the monthly costs of financing and operating a set of electric vehicle models against their gasoline-fueled counterparts across all 50 states. And the report shows that EVs are at least as affordable as gas cars in terms of monthly costs, which is a critical way of evaluating this purchase. That is, if federal tax credits remain available. So while EVs are more expensive upfront, when you just look at the sticker price, they're significantly cheaper to refuel and repair over the long haul. And for that reason, they can actually be cheaper for customers to own. For instance, a customer can save up to nearly $800 a year with the purchase of a Hyundai Electric SEL versus the gas-powered version of that car, and save nearly $1,400 a year with the purchase of a Ford F-150 Lightning Pro versus the gas-powered version of that truck. Energy Innovation calculates that on average, EVs can save their owners around $6,000 over their lifetimes. Now, not maybe every customer is doing that calculation, but it's definitely something you could start to see shift, especially if gas prices remain high for a long time. So I mentioned there that the savings really do hinge, at least in part, on federal tax credits. So Shane, what is your view on where we stand on policy today when it comes to promoting specifically passenger EV adoption? And Brandon touched on this a little bit earlier, where he talked about the fact that we want to move to this electrified future, but some of these EVs are not even available right now. And it is true that some of them still have higher upfront costs. So how can policy step in there to help the passenger side also see a boost? Yeah, there's a couple ways. So first of all, a higher upfront cost is not proving a challenge right now. I mean, as Brandon alluded to, I was talking to representatives from Rivian and GM last night at this conference. And they've got to produce vehicles. I mean, they have customers and it doesn't matter. Just like any you know, internal combustion engine, you want to pay $150,000 for a car, there's a model for you. You want to pay $40,000, there's a model for you. You want to pay $25,000, there's a model for you. So I think the OEMs, the manufacturers, they're figuring it out. They're figuring out what models want to be on the road. Uh, sales orders will tell you that customers are figuring it out. I mean, there are folks like me who used to make fun of Brandon for driving his EV and being late to get down to San Diego because he had to stop and charge. Uh, and now I'll never go back. I'll never drive an internal combustion engine again. I only hope that they make EV SUVs that can carry my family around because that way my wife won't have to drive one either. So I think consumer demand is there. Um, I think they're offering vehicles at different price points. You asked, Julia, what policies can we can we enable or enact, I should say? 
in the reconciliation legislation, for example, this would be the first time if it passed that you'd have an EV credit for a secondhand vehicle. So right now, if you want to go buy a used vehicle in any market, you can afford it for less than it would be you know, to buy a new one, though used vehicles are quite expensive now. Um, so you'd be providing a credit. And I think that does a couple things. It neuters the perception that these are only toys for rich people, but it also enables people of different income groups to get themselves into an EV and get that same upfront tax benefit, you know, that someone who, who can pay the, you know, for the Tesla or, or whatever is. If I had to focus on a policy solution, though, it actually would have nothing to do with EVs. It would have to do with the ability to manufacture them and to manufacture their supply chains here. And I think Brandon alluded to a lot of that before, too. But until we can make the materials and the batteries that can build these vehicles, we actually don't need to worry about incentivizing their purchase because literally everyone wants them. There's a year plus long waiting lists on these vehicles. I would argue, let's get these cars to market. Let's find out from manufacturers what tools they need to get the critical minerals they need, to get the battery packs they need, to get whatever it is that is holding them back from delivering these vehicles to consumers. Let's solve that supply chain bottleneck, and then let's see if we have a demand problem. But right now, I'm glad to report that I don't think we do. Shane, what do you make of the politics uh, on this? You know, like the MAGA crowd, like uh, many of them, because of Trump, are very negative on EVs. Now, we're very excited about the Ford F-150 Lightning that Julia mentioned. There was a reporter that recently took the Ford F-150 Lightning out for a couple weeks and was able to do everything a regular Ford F-150 could do and more. You know, having the electricity available at like a camping site because you've got this massive battery. power your house in an outage even. Power your house, was able to carry extraordinary cargo, tow things, everything that would be attractive to a typical F-150 owner. I just think this is going to be a better product and and that should win out. But what is your sense of the politics with the MAGA crowd? Because they're very negative about EVs. So I I think, and by think, I think I mean hope um, that this will be a self sort of executing solution for a couple of reasons. Um, I know people in that crowd and when they drive an EV, they're like, oh, this is really cool. Like that political resistance to the vehicle is totally sort of remedied when they get in the vehicle and see what it can do at what it could offer. And because we're seeing deployment grow, and I know Julia said four and a half percent earlier, but those numbers are going to continue to go up. That MAGA crowd, they're going to experience these vehicles. They're going to have friends with these vehicles, and they're going to learn that they're actually pretty cool. The most concerning thing I've seen on that note, and I'm going to mess the details up, so I'm not going to get into them, but there was an EV manufacturing facility that was going to be built in Georgia. And the gubernatorial primary was about who liked EVs less because that was sort of the vibe. And I think they, they're building the facility in North Carolina now instead. So there is certainly political resistance. I just think there's so much demand that we have a little bit of a time curve. And, you know, no matter who you are, when you use a product and you like it better, that's a very different conversation than me trying to convince you that you should like it. Because they think that we're saying you should like it because it's good for the environment. That's not true. I mean, I hope you do. But I like it because it's actually better. It's cooler. I like it more. And I think, you know, that hands-on experience people are going to get over the next couple of years will help smooth some of that out. You're referring to there, Shane, the Rivian uh, manufacturing plant in Georgia that won a bunch of tax incentives for bringing a lot of jobs to the region. Normally something that transcends any political persuasion. It did become a political lightning rod in this election. I think they are, in fact, still moving forward with Georgia, but it goes to show how this technology can be used as a political tool. Although I would caution hanging this on EVs specifically because the movement was a not-in-my-backyard movement, NIMBYism, that I think got thrown into the current political climate. 
I'd be hesitant to put too much emphasis on this being an EV thing. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy than the state average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice have helped vulnerable communities gain access to electric vehicles, energy storage, and energy savings. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. Political Climate is supported by Fish Tank PR. Fish Tank is a PR and marketing firm that was listed as one of Inc. Magazine's 5,000 fastest growing businesses in America last year and is widely recognized for its work within the booming cleantech and broader sustainability sector. Fish Tank helps companies demonstrate their commercial viability and clients include those that are backed by major VC firms, tech leaders, and private equity. With so many new entrants to the industry, Fish Tank helps tailor your corporate message to the right audience at the right time. They put in the time on media outreach to deliver meaningful results. To learn more about Fish Tank's approach to renewable energy, sustainability, and clean tech, go to fishtankpr.com. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com. to something you said, though, Shane, about domestic EV production. Um, But just to touch on the tax credits and incentives again, and this even relates to the leasing point, because we talk about opening leases or we talk about domestic EV manufacturing, but all of that takes years to actually come to fruition, to boost our domestic capabilities in these areas. And so in the meantime, we do have to keep that demand there. So what is the outlook for EV tax credits in general in the reconciliation bill? If it went forward, Do you think we'll end up with some EV incentives as part of that package? Because it's still important to keep the demand high. I think there's two, actually three components to this, Julia. There's the EV adder, which you may have been referring to, which is that under current law, you get $7,500 per vehicle for the first 200,000 vehicles that each manufacturer sells, and then it phases out. So that credit's already phased out uh, for GM. It's already phased out for Tesla. Um, and other companies, you know, are, are, are moving along, but have not phased out yet. What the current draft of the reconciliation bill would do is it would just make that credit. It would extend it 10 years, but it would not be uh, connected to or tied to how many vehicles each OEM is sold. It would just be a credit that was available to any, you know, member of the public who wants to purchase an EV. But then it also provided for an additional $5,000. So your credit could be up to 12500 if the vehicle was made in America with union labor and a certain amount of domestic content. I don't know exactly what that percentage is. There was some very serious pushback on that. And there's no scenario, in my view, where that $5,000 adder makes it in. I think that credit is still being debated. I think it probably had a pretty good chance of being in whatever package there is, um, except for that, you know, we have this whole supply-demand imbalance that I referenced earlier. And then as a separate, you know, sort of tool, it's the um, secondhand credit that we talked about. Joe Manchin is the one who will ultimately decide if the $7,500 credits in or out. But what he's saying is, 
You don't have to incentivize a behavior that people are willfully engaging in. That argument goes away with the secondhand EV credit. And he does seem to care about means testing and providing equal access to lower income households. So you could see a scenario where the secondhand credit lives, but the other one doesn't. You could see a scenario where the secondhand credit lives and the $7,500 credit lives and the union adder doesn't. The only scenario that I can't see is possible is the $12,500 credit, including the $5,000 adder. And also, I said earlier domestic production, but I didn't even really mean that. I know a lot of people mean that. I just mean production, but we have tariffs on everything we bring in. And then, you know, we're having trouble getting our supply chains in order. So I don't care how you solve for X. We need to get vehicles to consumers. I don't care where they come from. I know other people disagree with that, but I personally don't. Interesting. Got it. So let's pull that thread a little further, though. There have actually been announcements recently about auto manufacturers boosting their production right here in the U.S. So Hyundai confirmed that they're doing a new electric car factory in the U.S. Nissan is looking at maybe launching a third EV factory here. Also, Foxconn, the company that makes Apple products, has announced that the Fisker Pear electric vehicle will be built at the newly acquired Lordstown plant. Of course, Rivian makes vehicles here as well. Of course, they're facing some supply crunch issues broadly, as a lot of companies are. But we're seeing this movement happen. Brandon, you talked about wanting to supercharge this EV sector here at home. Do you feel like we're starting to see that? Yeah, I mean, there's a supportive, you know, policy environment with you look at like what we're doing in California. You know, the California Air Resources Board has already required that by 2035, you know, you need to have uh, 100% zero emission trucks. And if we can get this, you know, slimmed down version of reconciliation passed, uh, that'll be an incredible incentive. But this is a massive market opportunity for these companies. And if they can locate their manufacturing facilities here, you just reduce the risk that we've been experiencing over the last couple of years. Uh, with getting these products, you know, from from China uh, and other countries, so I'm really excited about what uh, the potential is for for all of this. And again, like I'm seeing on the battery front, you know, there, we talked to a company two weeks ago that thinks it can do a 700 mile range on a single charge, which would be pretty incredible. So, uh, and they've attracted a lot of you know investment and have a really talented CEO. So. You know, having all that innovation here and being close to it will be good for for the manufacturers. So you mentioned batteries there. Uh, We've actually seen battery prices spike as demand has started to outstrip production. A lot of different metals go into making the lithium ion batteries that power EVs. And those prices are up since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We talked about this on a previous episode with Yael Holzman, a reporter at E&E News, and we'll be sure to drop that link in the show notes because it was a really great and complex episode about tackling this issue. On a related note, we're recording this shortly after California Governor Gavin Newsom released his budget update. And this is what he wants to do with the nearly $100 billion budget surplus that California currently has. And as part of that plan, he wants to add up to $400 million to accelerate the development of a huge global supply of lithium and clean energy products at the south end of the Salton Sea, right here in California. That means developers in the area could soon have access to $1 billion more in green energy tax credits. So again, we are seeing, I think, this momentum build around the development of vehicles and not only the vehicles, but the supply chain right here at home. Julia, I'm also seeing, you know, innovation on that extraction of critical minerals. We, we met with a, a, a young African-American woman engineer who is taking like desalinization, that process and taking the brine and separating out 
you know, a bunch of these uh, critical minerals that you would need to make lithium ion batteries. She's getting uh, lithium, magnesium. Uh, so a lot of people are trying to, are, are working on that and uh, really excited about the potential there as well. Yeah, the innovation happening here is truly unmatched. It's just about the pace and scale, like so many things in climate, I think. It's like we have a lot of the solutions, but can we deploy, deploy, deploy in time to meet some of our goals? And that actually reminds me of the fact that 17 Republican state attorneys actually just launched a lawsuit that the Environmental Protection Agency is unlawfully letting California set its own vehicle emission standards, which of course is allowing California to be a leader on EVs and set its own rules because the state had historically really, really terrible air pollution and got a waiver to set its own regulations. But we're seeing yet again another attack on the ability for California to do that. And then 13 states follow what California does. So if California, like it's the cafe rules, the energy efficiency rules, you know, on, on fuel, when California sets their standard, 13 states adopt that standard. So, uh, you basically, it's like a third of the country would have that policy. Well, it's something to watch. I don't know if there's anything new about this new lawsuit, but it's not the first time it's happened, but we are yet again seeing an attack on that waiver program that California has, which could throw some of the EV policies and investments into doubt. Because if we've seen anything, it's volatility really knows how to how to mess up a market. Shane, I thought conservatives were wanted states to determine their own destiny. Well, it just depends on the issue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, I mean, joking aside, you know, we had this conversation. I remember the first time we talked about the waivers it was when we were still doing the hostage videos, as we used to call them. <laughs> when we recorded the podcast on a tiny little screen on video, just for everyone's reference. <laughs> yeah. And I think the waiver issue had real potency because it, it was a market driver. But honestly, like, I, I think it's stupid what they're doing, but I, but I don't think it matters. Like the whole point of the, the clean fuel standards is to make cars more efficient. And then you got extra credit for EVs. And then that drove manufacturers to put EVs into the, the ecosystem. They don't need that anymore. People really want these vehicles. Manufacturers are competing on who can design the better one. They're competing on who can design the more effective crossover, on who can design the cooler pickup truck. Like they are going to compete like crazy for this market with or without these standards. So I'm not trying to, you know, make light of it, but it really doesn't matter as a market driver for EVs anymore. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. And we've reached that tipping point because we have, again, seen slow and steady adoption, but there hasn't been that hockey stick in EV growth that, you know, we've been waiting for. And meanwhile, markets like Norway have 85, 90 plus percent adoption every quarter of EV vehicles. China's way ahead of the game. So I'm going to hold you to this. Maybe we need a new bet. I'm saying there is a hockey stick in the models manufacturers are putting on the road. And there's a push and pull here. But the waiver that allowed California to set stricter standards, that was forcing manufacturers to make more. That had nothing to do with consumer demand. They don't need to be forced. There is a huge hockey stick there. When you look at the, the models that were on the road, you know, five years ago to the models in production now, I bet you that's a beautiful hockey stick. It's like a, you sound like Trump. It's a beautiful hockey stick. It's the best hockey stick. <laughs> it's the, the biggest best, hockey stick. Biggest hockey stick. <laughs> okay. But if you build it, will they come? The point still stands of what kind of policies support this. And that goes for infrastructure as well. You know, we still have to make the economics work for public charging in the certain cases where that's needed. If this is really going to happen, we need to make sure that the power grid can support the uh, EV growth. But that's even if we can get those customers to follow through. And if they're waiting for a year for a vehicle, they may just drop out the market. So there's some real friction here, I think, of, of getting to that hockey stick growth 
in adoption and what actually shows up in people's driveways, even though we are seeing an uptick. I met with two companies last week that are attacking the problem of the 60 million you know, vehicles that park on the street. They have no garage parking, right? Mm. They have to park on the street. And these two companies have come up with very innovative ways to get charging to parked vehicles. And so, you know, is it a mobile there's no technology charger, like a robot there. that nope, comes not, around? Not mobile. Nope, not mobile. I can't give away too much more because I, <laughs> I want those deals. Uh, but I <laughs> don't want to give my competition an edge out here. Uh, but very cool business models because there's no technology risk in this, right? It's just like, how can you get those plugs out there in a way that works for the city, works for the neighborhood, works for the EV driver, works for the utility. And just seeing really cool ideas on, you know, business model innovation around taking advantage um, of, you know, the demand for EV charging. Well, I think we wrap up this show with bet. We had a bet before around who was going to win Texas. We've had a couple bets on this show. We've had a few bets. I won the first one. Why am I blanking on the beta bet? And then Shane won the second one. Someone owes me a very expensive bet. Yeah, someone also owes me dressing up in a line-eye jersey and uh, singing the fight song in front of- Fair, fair. You know what? I honestly forgot. You are 100% right. I absolutely owe you I don't even know what that bet's about, but I can't wait to see Shane do that. So the bet that I propose is where do you think EV sales will land in the U.S. passenger EV sales at the end of 2022? And we'll have to follow this up with wherever we are at the end of the year. For reference, sale of new light duty plug-in vehicles, including all electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids, doubled from around 300,000 vehicles in 2020 to just over 600,000 vehicles in 2021. So that's just your reference point. Shane, starting with you, since you're on camp hockey stick, where do you think we're going to end up this year? I just need to clarify. Are we talking about orders or are we talking about delivered vehicles? Because one of that, one mm. of them is out of our control, is out of everyone's control, right? Whereas the other, I think, is more predictable. Good question. I just think you're trying to like caveat and like show that you were right on the hockey stick without being well, actually I, right. I, don't know, I was definitely right on the hockey stick. That's a fair question. That's it's a totally fair, fair question. People I think we have to go with sales because I don't think we have a way of honestly tracking orders that's a verified third-party you know, solution. So where do you think sales, which means I think delivered vehicles or registrations is how they, they measure it, I think. so. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would argue registrations equals OEM's ability to serve the market. So I'll guess a million. Um, but I, and only because I think that they can't serve the market, you know, any greater than that by the end of this year. Totally fair. Yeah, that's it, that's a good point. We've got to factor in all the factors. Factor in the factors. Ugh. Brandon, what do you think? I was going to say a million, uh, but Shane stole my thunder. So I'll go 1.1 million. Yeah, you could have done 1 million and one. <laughs> I wasn't going to be a jerk. You realize how I hedged, Brandon. You can't possibly be right. Because if it's 1.1 million, I said, whatever they can serve in the market. <laughs> It, it, what is this? Is like if you go over, are you done, or is it closest to? I think it's closest to. Okay, let's do that. All right, it's not like prices, right? Fair enough. <laughs> yep. All right, I'll be I'll be the Debbie Downer, and I'll say nine hundred thousand. That keeps it going up three hundred thousand per year. Yeah. You're like me when I never knew like how expensive suitcases were. I'm like nine hundred and seventy dollars. Why would you bid that? There's a suitcase. <laughs> You know, and the price is right, but turns out they're very, very expensive. Suitcases, also a thing, yeah. What, what does the winner get in this bet? Oh, good question. Julia will buy you a new Rivian. <laughs> All right, Rivian on the table. I can't do that. Um, 
I don't think I could get one in time. <laughs> um, I mean, dinners are always fair game. I don't know. We should maybe ask our listeners, what should we bet? <laughs> I think Shane, if he loses, has to do one minute on this podcast about all of the great things about AOC. <laughs> I, don't think there's, I, don't, I don't have a good enough research team for one minute worth of content on quality things about AOC. <laughs> and that's not a knock on anyone except AOC, by the way. How about I write it for you and you have to read it? Fine. How about Brandon and Julia have to wear DeSantis 24 shirts? Oh, my God. <laughs> Governor DeSantis vetoed an anti-solar bill. I have to say, I'm, I'm impressed with his uh, actions on that. It was unexpected. Uh, we'll think of something. We'll take a we'll take recommendations. We'll uh, we'll find the right bet. But I think we've got a we've got our our numbers placed here. So nine hundred thousand, a million, one point one million. Let's see where EV sales end up. But for now, we'll wrap up this episode. Send your recommendations to Shane on Truth Social. <laughs> yeah, there's only there's only a few of us. So you can just do at Shane. <laughs> <laughs> just send everything to Shane, your 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 hate mail especially. Just kidding. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. While you're here, please hit follow or subscribe on wherever it is that you like to listen. And honestly, we really, really, really appreciate it when you leave a review. Uh, so go to Apple Podcasts. Just type in a few words about what you liked about the show, what you'd like us to cover more of. It really, really helps us. You know, we took a little break last year. It's time to refresh those pages. And so if you're a listener here, we really appreciate you taking the time to do that. I'm your host, Julia Piper. We had Brandon on the line, Shane Skelton. And behind the scenes, we have Maria Virginia Alano, our producer. Thank you to her. And also our editor, Kyle McDonald, who makes this show possible. And with that, see you again in a couple weeks. <laughs>